Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Ashley Banfield is here today. She is the host of Banfield on News Nation. And our conversation is about violence, gun violence, online violence, uh, and what we're all going to do about it. Here I am with Ashley Banfield. Welcome to the podcast, Ashley. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's talk first about the horrible tragedy in Texas. Uh, This was the deadliest school shooting in Texas history. And what a horrible statistic even, uh, even to keep. What do we know about the 78 minutes between the time that the shooter entered the school and the time that the police actually entered and confronted the shooter? What explains the delay? You know, I think that the, the, tra- the tragedy uh, beyond tragedy in, in all of this is just, I think, an inexperienced person who was in command. You know, the incident commander was no more than a school police chief, not even a police chief of a small town. This was a police chief of a small town school district. And so that's someone who's probably never had any experience with a mass incident like this. Um and, and what a lesson to be learned for the rest of this country, because as you just said, you know, this is just, <laughs> this is going to happen again. I, I can't even believe I'm saying that, but it, it will. And the tragedy here was that either there was a complete breakdown of communication from what was going on on 911 being disseminated not only to the incident commander, but then everyone else who was responding, those police officers who were in the hallway, all 19 of them, outside the door of the actual crime scene where there were children still alive begging for help. That information either did not get to them or got to them. And then there's an inexcusable reason for not going in and rescuing because our protocol has changed since Columbine time. There is no ambiguity here. When there's a school shooting, you run to the bullets, period. You don't set up perimeters. You don't assess. You don't, you know, uh, wait for gear. it's, it's the job of a first responder, and it is tragic to say this. It is the job of the first responder to go in and save lives, regardless of, of the risk uh, to, to the first responders. I hate to even say that, but that, that's what we've come to in this country as a protocol. I cannot get my head around what it must have felt to be one of those parents outside the school being told, you can't come in while kids are inside calling 911. I mean, I think that's what's so troubling, Ashley, is that on the one hand, uh, there's there's reporting that law enforcement on the scene thought that the shooter was barricading himself. But on the other hand, we know that those babies were calling 911 and pleading for help. So that to me seems to be a pretty, in at, 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 at a minimum, That's a pretty inexcusable disconnect. I mean, I don't know how you have such a a miscommunication between the people receiving emergency calls and the first responders. How does that happen? It's inconceivable. Um, Again, all I can point to is that this is a very small town with very inexperienced um, officers when it comes to an incident of this magnitude, and also an incident commander who was nothing more than a school police chief in a, in a town of 15,000 people. What defies logic even more is just the human nature aspect of it. Parents were willing to run into that school and had to be handcuffed and, and, and pinned to the ground not to. So the human nature of it was, I'm going in there and I don't care what happens to me. 
Even some officers have spoken off the record and said, we felt like we were pathetic. We felt like we were cowards not going in there because their command was not to go in there. And even more reporting said, the TAC team said, to hell with it. (laughs) To hell with the command. We're going in. And then eventually they did go in. And until we have a really fulsome investigation, we won't really know all the answers to exactly what transpired, what commands were given when, what commands were thwarted, um, whether there was a mutiny, what time, at what point was there a mutiny if there was one. And all of those will be helpful. Uh, They will certainly be helpful to the parents who deserve answers as to why their children are dead today. They will be helpful to the rest of the country who's desperately trying to figure out how this could happen. They may be helpful to the next small town um, out there that now wants to make sure that they're prepared for the potential that this could happen to them. But ultimately, it's not going to change anything, right? It's not going to ascribe more blame, punishment, and consequences. I mean, what do we want to do? Do we want to imprison the unit commander, the incident commander? Do you want to flog him publicly? I mean, is that going to change anything? The man had no intention of having children die under his watch. Let's be frank. Uh, But it it happened. Um, He made decisions that were wrong, that were uh, badly informed. I don't know what his training was, whether his training was the most it could be in a small town like that with that budget, and that's the best they could do, or whether they had made mistakes in their training, in their budgeting, in their resource management that led to this. But I think, you know, the investigation that will happen at a federal level likely will, will help us to to come to some terms. And again, I don't even know what those terms will do for us. You know, you're touching on something important and I want to pick up on what you said just then, what those terms will do for us, because you're a journalist, uh, you've been reporting on this story and you've also watched reaction uh, to this story. Do you think that there is some, I don't know, like closure, there's some conclusion that people are looking for that will make them feel better, that will never, that will actually not make anybody feel better. You know, do we want to punish someone? Do we want to punish uh, this commander? Do we want to punish the officers on the street? Like, what are people looking for? Because it doesn't seem like anyone's prepared to do, it doesn't seem anyone's prepared to do anything that will actually prevent this again. So yeah, what are we looking? We're all for? grasping at this, right? We're all grasping. Like, how can I, how can I make sense and, and feel better about what just happened? And the answer is, you will not be able to. You cannot make sense of it. That was a madman who did a horrible thing and had access to a horrible thing to do that thing to those children, right? Some people will say he had access to to something that we all should have access to. There's a there's a competing wisdom here. Unless we had an assault weapon ban, weapons ban, that that 18 year old adult could be could go off to war and use that weapon, but he can't buy a drink or buy cigarettes. And I I just can't understand how we've decided that young people at the age of 18 who are not responsible enough to drink in this country are deemed responsible enough to have a deadly weapon. That's what guns are. I mean, you can be for a gun, against gun, I don't care what you are, but guns are deadly weapons. I'm just unclear as to why there is such a hue and a cry against responsible uh, gun ownership and responsible gun safety and responsible gun legislation. Because, you know, it's not as though we want to pry guns out of people's hands. We just want to make sure that the wrong people don't get them. And in this respect, there would have been a lot of different, you know, gun safety uh, rules that could have prevented that 
that young man from getting that weapon. Uh, a fulsome background check, um, uh, you know, sponsors uh, who have to deem you, uh, you know, okay to have a gun. You know, there's certain gun laws in, I think, Australia, or, yeah, in Australia or New Zealand, where you you actually have to have, and in Canada, um, your your domestic partners have to be okay with it for you to, to be licensed to, to have a gun because they're the ones who are at most risk, right? But there, there could be responsible legislation that would not uh, prohibit responsible people, law-abiding citizens from having guns, but it would prohibit dangerous people from having guns. And they're the ones who are causing this havoc in our, in our country. Do you think that, um, you know, you spoke a little bit about how there may be lessons that could be learned from this incident for other small towns, for other districts. There are many lessons, but I am really at a loss, Ashley. I am really at a loss to figure out if there's any way that we'll ever prevent this again. Um, You know, we can learn from this, just like people say they purportedly learned. We've purportedly been learning from school shootings since Columbine. I don't know what lessons need to be learned or could be learned to prevent uh, another yeah. tragedy. I, I just don't know if there is such a lesson. I, I, I really don't. Right. I, I don't know every, if I'm being every school shooting. We've implemented a new lesson. <laughs> every school shooting, we've implemented a new lesson. Columbine was, now we have a different protocol. There will be no perimeters set up. There will be no hesitation. There will be an entry and a neutralization of the shooter as quick as possible, regardless of the danger to first responders. That was the, that was the law, right? That was two decades ago. We have fortified schools. We've put in bulletproof glass. We've made, you know, single entry points, locked schools, locked classroom doors. We've, we've implemented lesson after lesson after lesson. And at some point you can't Kevlar wrap every school, right? You just can't make soft targets hard. You can't. And if you were to have armed teachers, well, how would the teachers have behaved any differently than the armed guard outside of the Tops supermarket who was just shot dead? Um, And how would you have operated any differently than 19 armed to the hilt police officers outside that classroom that couldn't stop the killing, didn't stop the killing, had too many risks? These teachers are nowhere near as trained as these 19 armed personnel who were outside that classroom. And still, the killing and the death continued. What could possibly go wrong having an, a, a loaded weapon in every classroom in America? What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> you know, we already have so many children who are killed with their family's own weapon because there's a, there's a, a loaded weapon in a home. And sometimes it's well-meaning uh, parents who accidentally forget to lock it or lock it wrong or leave it out. And, and teachers and people too, and they're going to make mistakes. So there's a, there's a lot of wrong for every right that is suggested, right? You mentioned the top shooting, and let's talk about that for a moment because, um, you know, with so much tragedy uh, that's taken place in this country over the past few weeks, it is important not to lose sight of any of those victims. There has been some reporting that a retired federal agent may have known of the shooter's plan in Buffalo. Uh, What do you know of that reporting and what do you know about that story? Nothing, um, because until that's a a proven fact, I would never want to surmise that that 
is, is reality. But I also know that for decades, we've had white supremacists involved in law enforcement, teaching, all aspects of society, right? Every aspect of society is not immune to having a white supremacist in your midst. So I wouldn't um, brush all police officers with that horrible paint. It could be true and it wouldn't be weird. That's the sad part because I think you could pick any office building anywhere and you'll find somebody who has some pretty racist viewpoints. This is not, we don't know the federal agency. This has been reported by the Buffalo News. Uh, it's not all been corroborated, but there has been, there, there has been reporting that other folks may have been in touch with this shooter and been aware of his plan before he went to Tops. What we do know, however, is that he did have something of a social media imprint. Um, talk to us a little bit about that, uh, Ashley, and about what we know about his social media history. And I'm now talking about the Tops shooter uh, who killed those people in Buffalo. So the, the reality is, is that just about every one of these shooters has some kind of social media history, usually. And then we're all astounded. Oh, if he had said something on a social media channel at some point, how could this have happened? There had to have been someone out there who knew. And why didn't they say something? And that's Pollyanna at this point, right? Because these people are in their silos and they're speaking to their choirs. And I would assume that there probably were some people in those social media channels who were cheerleading this, right? That's what these people do. They are the criminally minded. They are the severely racist. And this is sort of a mission for them, right? If they think the great replacement theory is, is real and coming for them, then they are at war. And they think that this guy was one of their warriors and he will communicate with like-minded people. Now, thank God that that's not something that was just flowing on Twitter for millions to ignore. These are usually extremely myopic groups with very limited follow, you know, followers, um, sometimes just in the handful. That's tragic, <laughs> but it's true. And I think this is our world, Tanya. I think we're living with a lot of hate in our midst. And um, when they gather, whether they gather in a building in the woods or a social hall or on a weird, obscure social network channel, they're going to gather. They're going to do it and they're going to say what they're going to say and they're going to believe what they're going to believe and they're going to be filled with hate and they're going to commit crimes. And sometimes they're not so siloed. And, you know, I, I'm sort of of the mind that I don't really always know how to tell the difference between the online racist who's half a step away from getting a gun and shooting up people who look like me or people who don't look like uh, him, frankly, um, or, you know, just the run-of-the-mill trolls who show up on my page and yours, I'm sure, for, uh, from time to time, uh, just to leave their silo and spew their hate elsewhere. I don't really know, Ashley, how to tell the difference between those folks. Uh, it's hard, you, right? I, mean, I, I don't really this, know. I don't know. This is the problem. I mean, I heard an analyst say in the last week that this shooter in Uvalde was depressed, troubled, uh, said questionable things, um, was difficult, had propensity to 
pop off a BB gun. I don't know that that's true. These are things that were said about him. And then I heard the analyst say, so if we were to isolate everybody like that and, you know, in a minority report, Tom Cruise movie kind of way, say, well, you're a risk to society. We'd have tens of millions. You know, we would just have, I mean, so many people who seem dangerous aren't. They, they seem it. And then some of them are. And thank God it's rare. Sadly, in this country, it's way more common than it is in other countries, but it's still in 350 million people, it's still rare. But Preventing this by identifying those who seem like they could be school shooters or mass shooters, you know, or racist shooters, mass lynchers, is an impossible science because we're brushing a lot of people with the same stroke and, um, and, and that's wrong, right? I, I, you know, and we talk about the racists. I remember when I got going in this business 34 years ago, one of the first stories in my early career was the, um, the shooting of the École Polytechnique in Quebec, because I'm Canadian. And I think the number was 14 who were shot dead. So bizarre, right, in the 80s. This didn't happen in the 80s. And they were all women. Mm. And the shooter had a thing about women. And he separated the men from the women and he forced the men to march out at gunpoint. And then he massacred the women. So... You know, if you belong to a, a, an oppressed group, a minority group, you've probably had something happen like this in your past where you thought, really? This is what I now am reduced to? I should die just because I'm a woman? Really? I should die just because I'm black? Really? I should die just because I'm Asian? And this is now kind of a reality for so many different groups, right? Well, and I think you also uh, have to consider it in the context of all of this other anger and frustration that's taking place. So, you know what, if things aren't going well for you, how easy is it for you to blame that woman on TV who you're sure got her job hosting that show, you know, because she's a woman or those black people who now have everything going for them or these immigrants who get free socials. I mean, you know, there are, uh, there are so many channels for people to, direct their anger and frustration into these really racist, gendered, sexist, horribly, uh, horribly phobic ways. How do you manage? So how do you engage? Uh, you are a public figure. You're a journalist. You've been in the trenches reporting on all sorts of things, um, legal issues, political issues, international issues. Um, and as a woman in the public eye, you know, I'm sure sometimes you get people who show up on your page and they're like, I disagree with you, so on and so forth. And sometimes it is they just want to go for the jugular because you are there and it's yeah. all about the body parts. Um, yeah. How do you manage? Yeah. How do you manage in this space? It's so it's so interesting, Tanya, because like I said, I've been at this for a long time now, right? 34 years. So I've come up through there was no way to spew your venom unless you took the time to write a letter and mail it. <laughs> By that time, you were probably too bored or you know, to change your heart. <laughs> or you realized how stupid you sounded because it was so much effort. So, well, you know, you on occasion, back in the 80s and 90s, you'd get a letter that was like, I don't like you. But it, it, it never really was uh, so incredibly painful and so pointed and, and, and just with so much anger. It was rarely like that. 
I remember um, in the 2000s, um, in 2001, I, there, was a, there was a fan who used to reach out really regularly. And that's when not a lot of people were really emailing a ton. Like in the year 2000, 2001, email was still kind of, you know, getting traction and, and companies were just getting, you know, uh, I, I, you know, extra office email as opposed to just intra office email. And so there was this one fan who used to, you know, he was a bit like, um, like, like that. Oh, what's the movie that I'm your number one fan, Kathy Bates, you know, <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> right. He seemed fairly harmless. He seemed fairly yeah. harmless. And he, I'm your number one fan. I'm your number one fan. He always used to call me his number one fan. And then nine 11 happened and I was dispatched to Afghanistan within nine days and I didn't come back for a year and I didn't have any electronics and there were no smartphones and there were no like laptops that could communicate out of Afghanistan. I literally had no communication other than with my direct team. And I was broadcasting only with that direct communication. Even my family, I had no communication with my family. It had to come from my team in New York. They'd call and say, she's fine. Everything's fine. You know? And uh, this guy had been emailing pretty regularly the whole time I was away and not getting any responses. And he turned to Kathy Bates he started, he turned so evil because he felt rejected because I was not responding to him. Unbeknownst to me, I had no idea he was emailing. I was, you know, halfway around the world. And it became um, like, it became a group violence mission to, to group rape me. And his, his emails and his, his sort of uh, appeals to the public to descend upon me and massacre me and group rape me and cut me to pieces and and he was splicing, you know, my head onto, you know, butchered bodies. And uh, the NYPD got involved and had to actually take take action because I only found out about it when I got back, you know. And there were 10,000 unread emails at this point. And so that was my first experience with an, uh, an online bully slash threat. And I thought it was so bizarre. I mean, at that point, it was bizarre. My whole company thought it was bizarre. And we all thought it was bizarre. But little did I know it would become standard, you know, like these kinds of um, these kinds of like expressions of sexual violence and violence and murder. And they're kind of like par for the course now, you know, like that's not weird anymore for someone to wish you being raped and murdered <laughs> because they don't like what you're saying. I, How do you I, deal with it? I guess I've just become immune to it at this point, right? I um, That story, while strangely not surprising to me, nonetheless gave me chills. I, tell me this, and I'm going to hope for a good answer. Tell me that when this person was throwing out calls uh, to, for violence against you, that he didn't have many takers. At least tell me that. So the weird thing is I don't know because it wasn't here. <laughs> they couldn't get to me in Afghanistan. I didn't have children. I didn't have a family back in New York City. I had an apartment with plants <laughs> that were being watered, you know. So they had no target that was easily reachable. And by the time I saw all of this, you know, vitriol, it was easily six months old, you know. You were off safely in Afghanistan. Right, right. safely. Um, the yeah. stalker. Thank goodness you were off in Afghanistan, away from the hands of the guy who was threatening to kill and rape you. You know, you uh, are Canadian and you've reported around the world and reported on international issues. Let's go back to uh, these horrific 
school shootings uh, in this country. Mm. What does the rest of the world think? How do people see us uh, in the context of this, uh, of this type of violence? I think generally speaking, they're bewildered. But so are we, <laughs> you know. Um, they're bewildered that we're bewildered and can't seem to figure it out, right? They, their bewilderment is just an exercise in emotion with no consequence. Our bewilderment does have consequences because we don't resolve it. And we just let it happen over and over and over again. And they, that's compounded bewilderment for them. So they're bewildered that it happens. They're bewildered that we continue to let it happen. And they're bewildered that we're bewildered and can't get it, you know, can't get it straight. And all the while, other, um, you know, other nations have chosen to enact, you know, stronger gun control laws and have actually seen results, you know. So they, they don't understand why we have a, you know, a mindset that those kinds of laws wouldn't change things. And there, there are a lot of points to be made. Listen, I work for News Nation. I'd like to see both sides. I don't just describe to one side and I'm blind to why you're crazy if you believe something else, you know? And so I do like to listen to some of these other viewpoints. And there was a, a woman who was part of a mass shooting uh, in Las Vegas, the worst one ever. I think it was 58 people were killed in Las Vegas. And at the Jason Aldean concert, do you remember that outdoor? Mm-hmm. Very, very, so very, very She wrote a really... Um, Profound article. Oh my gosh, what do you know? I still have it here. Um, she wrote a really profound article. Her name uh, is Leah Labresco with Washington Post. And she said, I used to think gun control was the answer. My research told me otherwise. And so she, I, I think she actually interviewed the, a person who was um, who was involved in the, in the Vegas shooting, but she did the research. She was very liberal. This writer believed in, in gun control. And then um, doing the research as to what each of these gun control measures would have done to change the outcome in many of the, the shootings, she discovered that it wouldn't have, it, it would not have, which I thought was really fascinating. So there's merit to a lot of the arguments uh, for those who support Second Amendment and, and you know, a limitation on, on gun restrictions. There is merit there, but there has to be a meeting of the minds, right? Because clearly this country has more guns than people. And we have... a exponential inordinate number of gun deaths. There were 17 mass shootings just since Uvalde, 17 in this country. So we're doing something wrong. And for either side not to acquiesce something to the other on this is criminal, right? So gun restriction enthusiasts have got to back off. You're not going to get everything you want. This country has a culture, a second amendment culture, You can't disrespect that. You can't disrespect the opinions of others. You can't disrespect some of the facts that this Washington Post writer came up with, super liberal writer. But there has to be a meeting of the minds as to where you're prepared to give in. And I think that's the biggest problem with Americans right now. No group wants to give in anything, you know, whether it's cultural, whether it's race power, whether it's sex power. Uh, No one wants to give in anything. There's no compromise left in this country. And that is the most tragic thing. 
We're so siloed. But you know what, Ashley, I got a microphone. You got a microphone. We can do what we can to change that because you are right. I mean, this is actually a complicated conversation. And I'm talking about gun control in the context of American culture. It is possible to enjoy sports shooting and also be in favor of reasonable gun restrictions. Um, and I've been also, the same way. I grew know? up with a gun rack, you know? I grew up with a gun rack. And my parents were really, really strict with the four kids about how to handle the long arms. They were all long arms because there's so few sidearms in the public in Canada. But, um, but the populate, but the percentage of long arms at one point, I think about 10, 15 years ago, outnumbered the percentage of Americans with long arms. So Canadians have a lot of long arm guns, mostly for, you know, uh, hunting and rifles. And I grew up with a gun rack. I shot 22s all the time. We had cans in our back. I mean, those were so rednecky, but um, we had like cans in our backyard uh, <laughs> at the little summer place that my parents built with their own hands. So all summer long, we like, bing, 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 bing. Um, we actually did go out and hunt pheasant. And I had to deplume them, which stopped me hunting for the rest of my life because I thought it was appallingly <laughs> gross. And I realized what I was doing. And so um, I also was a card carrying member of the NRA after a horrendous crime that happened near my house. Um, a doctor lost his wife and two daughters in a disgusting and despicable rape murder. And, and the children were burned alive um, mm -hmm. by this these two people. It was just horrifying. And it was so close to the house that my, um, my then husband and I decided to get weapons, get trained and have a gun safe and become members of the NRA so that we got the safety course, you know? And so we had these weapons in the house. We had small children in the house, which was always a terror of mine, but I felt like that was what we needed because this happened right down the road. Um, and so I have a, a healthy respect for the lethality of weapons, having had it drilled into my head as a kid. Um, then I took the NRA safety course, passed it with 100%. And Tanya, about 10 years after that, I got the guns out of the house mm. because I was so afraid that something else was going to happen with those weapons and the kids. Mm. I was just so afraid of the other side of the danger of those weapons. And I ended up getting them out of the house. And then about four or five years after that, weapon back in the house. So I have myself have gone back and forth over the fear of danger of weapons, right? And the safety of weapons. But I am all for legislation about keeping weapons safe and keeping them out of the hands of those who absolutely should never have them, like the shooter in Uvalde, like the shooter at Tops. And I could go on and on. I think that uh, you really, Ashley, point out the complexity of this issue. But I tell you what um, I, is not at all complicated is how great you are at your show, what a great journalist you've been. People can see you on News Nation, on Banfield, your eponymous show. Uh, you deserve it. And I really uh, thank you so much for being here and talking through all this stuff with me. It's just been wonderful to, to hear your voice on these issues. Well, we're only really, really great when you're on as a guest. And so thank you for always coming on and giving your brilliant perspective to all legal issues and then some. <laughs>